right. Everybody have your Bibles with you? Turn to Revelation chapter 1. I bet you can guess where we're going. <laughs> Let me just ask, uh, how many of you have dabbled in Revelation before? Lots of hands. And uh, how many of you have some questions from the book? Yeah. Same. <laughs> we're going to buckle up and get into this. I anticipate that this... Um, Maybe a lengthy but good journey. We don't want to rush our way through there, this uh, book. It is too important to just sort of try to do Revelation in four weeks or eight weeks. And so very likely over the next several seasons, we're going to just get into it for a while and then get our heads above water and take a break and do something else for a few weeks and then back down into Revelation for few more weeks and then take another break and um, we'll just keep journeying over the next several months in and out of Revelation so that we have opportunity to really encounter all that God has for us. I know that many of us have read through it. Um, it's kind of like the Leviticus of the New Testament. It's like, I know I'm supposed to read this, but what in the world does this mean? How does this relate to my life and should I be very, very afraid as I'm reading this? And um, it is an excellent, captivating, compelling book with a vitally important message from God's heart to all of us who follow Jesus. It was absolutely relevant, absolutely critical and important for the first Christians of 2,000 years ago. And it is for us today as well. Of all the Sundays in the series, this one may actually be the most important and perhaps helpful because... We're going to hopefully pack our backpacks with a few essential tools that we need for the journey ahead. And without these, we might find ourselves into a, a great bit of trouble. And so I anticipate that some people are watching this right now online, and it's actually months into the future, and you're re-watching re this because you missed this Sunday, or you're just like, I have to get back to this right now, so that I make sure I have those essentials that help us know our way through this book as we get into it together. When I was um, in high school and then my first several years of college, uh, I had a laborer's job, worked in a greenhouse for seven years, cutting roses and working with plants and all that. And um, I had an interesting group of coworkers, and there was a lot, we cycled through a lot of different staff. Somehow I managed to stay on for seven years and pay the bills that way. And um, I remember this one time, we had, I just was kind of in between two people having a very interesting conversation. We had a very mixed staff, a group of people that were working, but at this one particular time, we had these two people that were beside me, and one um, was in the midst of working on a, a doctorate um, at Trinity Western University, and part of his study um, focused specifically on Dead Sea Scrolls, so f scrolls that were found just in the last hundred years in Israel that contained... Um, Old Testament writings. And so he was one of the few people on earth who was actually privileged to see some of these scrolls and fragments, and he was writing his whole doctoral thesis on this one particular fragment of a scroll that had a few letters that were believed to be from first or second kings. And so he, had, he was giving thousands of hours of his time looking at the Bible under a microscope, quite literally trying to understand individual Hebrew letters and how that might be relevant to the interpretation of those particular books. And so he was working there. I don't know why he was working there. He should have been working at some brainier place, but he was one of our coworkers. He was a very interesting guy. And on the other side, we had this woman who had grown up in the church but had wandered away in faith. And somehow the two of them got talking about the book of Revelation. 
at work. <laughs> and so, of course, we know how this individual, the gentleman, how he would approach that. I mean, he was good at getting as deep down into detail as anybody possibly could. And on the other hand, um, this woman really had loosened herself from any sense of faith and religious background, but still had some memory, religious memory. And she said of the book of Revelation, she said, I don't know, it's just too confusing. I don't think we're supposed to understand it. To which he went berserk. <laughs> now what's interesting, um, I, I, I don't know where she's at in her life right now, but he and I have, I mean, we had a meal together maybe five, six years ago. We found each other and I see him online every once in a while. He's a world-renowned academic um, he no longer is a laborer at a greenhouse. But he has left the faith also. And I think there's something for us to pay attention to here, that there are wrong ways to handle Scripture. Her way of saying, I don't think we're supposed to understand it, is not helpful. His way, if this was the only way he was handling Scripture, by putting everything under a microscope so you give thousands of hours to one Hebrew letter or two, you can miss Jesus. And if you avoid certain books of the Bible because it's confusing or you happen to believe that God must not want us to understand it, you're missing Jesus too. And so as we go through this series together, our hope is to not be at either of those extremes, but to approach it in the healthy place in between. We will go deep. We will learn some of the things that come out of the original languages and all of that, but we want to see it from a 40,000-foot view so that we can see the big picture that God is presenting through this wonderful book. I hope you have your scriptures open right now to Revelation chapter 1. We are going to begin right at the beginning. As often as possible through this series, we're going to try to read through the text. I can't promise that we're going to read through the whole book, through this whole series, but we're going to cover a lot of ground because it's just important for you, as you will see, to hear it. And I believe for you to read it for yourself, even out loud when you're at home or wherever you go. And so let's give some time right now to the first eight verses, and then we're going to begin unpacking some of the essentials for the journey in front of us. Let's pray. Father, what we hold before us is a gift from you, and you do want us to understand it. And so we pray now that you would supply tools, that the work and presence of your spirit would illuminate your voice as revealed vividly through this book. As we begin this journey together, we commit ourselves to you and to following you through it. And we do this now in Jesus' name. And everyone said with a smile, amen. amen. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the word of this prophecy. That means I'm getting blessed right now because I'm reading it. And blessed are those who hear it. Hey, you're getting blessed too. But there's uh, something else you've got to do. It says, and take to heart what is written in it. Why? Because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you 
from him who was, who is, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits, or the sevenfold spirit before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us. Anybody in the room today know that you are loved and freed by Jesus? Amen. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests. I'll just pause there for a moment. You and I have been made by God through Jesus Christ to be a kingdom and priests. We don't have time to dig deeply into that today, but I just need to point out, you and I are not meant to live on this earth in a passive kind of way. If you're part of God's kingdom and you are a priest In his kingdom, there is something active and very exciting and very important for you to be part of. So he's made us to be a kingdom and priests, to serve God, to serve his God and Father. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. And those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who, uh, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. Today, as we consider this text and as we approach this book, I want to begin with two questions. And the questions are, why was it written? And what do we need to know as we head into the book of Revelation together. So the first question, why was it written? One of the things that is so important for us to always pay attention to in scripture is the motive. And beneath that or behind that and around that, what is the context? Yes, you and I should be reading this book devotionally. You and I should be studying it, should be encountering Jesus in it. It was gifted by God to you and I for this day. But it was also gifted by him for the first readers and hearers toward the end of the first century AD. What did it mean to them? Why did it matter to them? What was the context? What was going on in their world? And as you and I will learn together through this whole series, and especially maybe in this next couple weeks, especially, there were some significant differences, but beneath those differences There were some very similar ingredients going on then in the world that are going on now, which makes this work and this word so important for us today as well. So the context matters so much. I want you to just rewind in your mind a little bit in history. Jesus is raised from the dead and then ascends, and so this is some 30 plus years AD. 20 years later, so mid-century, first century, Christianity has begun advancing. It's still located primarily in Jerusalem, but it's beginning to spread a little bit. There's growing numbers of followers of Jesus. Many of them, most of them are coming out of a Jewish background, but there are emerging pockets of communities uh, of people who have a non-Jewish background, Gentiles from within the reach of Jerusalem and beyond are beginning to discover that this Jewish Jesus is actually so universal that he didn't just come to rescue those of Jewish faith. He came to rescue people of all race, ethnicity, all faiths around the world. Jesus came for everyone. And so faith is beginning to spread. By the mid-first century, pressure against Christianity is beginning to mount. Christianity was birthed in an environment that was surrounded by the influence of the Roman Empire. And by the mid-first century, 
the Roman emperors had begun playing, uh, had begun quitting playing fair and nice. And so things got pretty intense. And persecution and pressures of all kinds started um, mounting up in different areas within the Roman Empire territory. And a lot of that came against Christians. About a year and a half or two years ago, we spent time as a church in the book of 1 Peter, which would have been written somewhere in the mid-first century, as pressure was beginning to mount. And those of you who are with us, you might remember some of the things at the center of that series. Pressure was mounting, and how did Peter refer to the people that he was writing to? Over and over again in that book, he called them strangers, aliens, foreigners. They were outsiders. He was reminding these people, the world around us is changing constantly, and you are going to feel different. Don't try to fit in. Be who Christ has made you to be. Don't try to not fit in and make it weird either, but don't bend to the ways of the world and society. Be who you were created. Be the citizen of Christ that you were designed to be. So he talks about our identity as aliens and strangers, and then he has this message for them. And essentially, if First Peter was one word, you would say the, the word is withstand. If it was three words, it would be withstand by witness. Over and over and over again, Peter does not tell the people he's writing to in the mid-first century to retreat from the world. He actually says, engage it and keep doing good. You're going to get misunderstood. You're going to get pushed to the margins. Does that mean you become loud and blast the enemy? No, you start doing good and more good and more good and more good. And that's the message of 1 Peter. Now, time begins to pass. By 70 AD, there's a significant historic event that occurs. The Roman influence... Um, rises and moves on Jerusalem in a way that they had not before, and they destroy the temple. And so Jerusalem is ransacked, and the temple is totally leveled. Destruction, and what this means as well, is a scattering. Now persecution is really breaking out at the epicenter of our faith in Jerusalem. And so Christians begin moving out and about uh, to the ends of the earth with the message of Christ. Ten years later, into the 80s and 90s of the first century AD, a new emperor comes to power, and his name is Domitian, and he's real bad news. He was very, very insecure. Now, what happens if somebody is very insecure and they have all the power? <laughs> bad news. He was a massive power monger. He was destructive. By this time, the 80s and 90s, who knows what the fastest growing religion in the Roman world was? Not Christianity. Emperor worship. And guess who was fueling it at this point? Domitian. Now, it had already been growing for the last several decades throughout the Roman Empire, but Domitian was insecure. And so he began referring to himself as Lord and God. Have we heard that language anywhere before? Interestingly, he's borrowing language from others, but he's referring to himself as Lord and God. And he had different checkpoints set up throughout the empire at different places where uh, he expected every Roman citizen to take a pinch of incense, toss it, and then recite that Caesar, the emperor, is Lord. Now, that was easy for the Romans to do, even if the Roman citizens didn't like that particular emperor, Domitian, they could just easily do it. Why was that easy for them? Because they were polytheistic. They already had so many gods. Why not add the emperor to it? It keeps us alive. That's just fine. But that was a big problem for Christians, wasn't it? They couldn't walk around saying Caesar is Lord because they knew he was not Lord. 
And because it became so woven into the fabric of emperor or empire life, it became harder and harder for Christians to do life because if they were at a public event and everybody had to do their throwing of incense and saying Caesar is Lord, the Christians couldn't do it. They had to at least think if they would. Were they going to bend on that? If they were in a trade guild, the guild may get together for a meal and all of them would pinch incense and throw it and say Caesar is Lord. And what happens when the Christian doesn't? Well, they might be out of the guild then. There goes their livelihood, their business, changes things for their family. Things became very difficult for Christians under Domitian. Persecution began ramping up. In the year 8092 alone, records say that Domitian was responsible for killing 40,000 Christians. That had a massive impact in the Roman Empire and in what God was doing through his church. So the church of the first century, especially in the 80s and the 90s, they were very aware of real persecution. And when I say real persecution, real persecution is when you die because you confess Jesus is Lord and God. They were very aware of, uh, of that pressing in all around them. And so it put them in a place where they had to consider a couple of options. Faithful to Jesus or compromise. Faithful to Jesus or complacency. You see, while persecution was mounting around the empire, it wasn't in every single city. And so there were some cities where Christians could safely kind of continue to practice their faith and not feel that threatened. And do you know what some of them faced? Not the temptation to compromise, the temptation to be complacent. Because it was easy for them to think, you know, Rome's actually been pretty good to me here. Maybe Caesar isn't all that bad. Maybe we could have two lords, right? Caesar and Jesus. Maybe Jesus becomes a bit of an accessory. When people get into a complacent version of faith, Jesus begins moving further and further into the distance. When people move towards compromise, Jesus moves further and further into the distance. And so a fundamental question for first century Christians was, who will I worship? To, to Roman citizens, that wasn't a very important question. They had multiple gods, throw the Caesar in the mix, no problem. But to the Christians, it mattered massively. Their lives were on the line, depending on how they answered it. Who will I worship? Will I worship the gods of dominant culture? Will I worship self, my own way? Or will I worship a slain lamb? And when you think of all the symbolism within Rome, which was all power, 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 a slain lamb was kind of the total opposite of that. It was maybe a little embarrassing to think that's your God. Now, I wonder if um, you and I can identify with any of the similar struggles. Now, none of us are facing that kind of persecution. Thanks be to God, that's not in our part of the world right now. But, do you know what it's like to have dominant culture press its idea and ideology towards you? seeing if you'll bend your knee toward it. Do you know what it's like for the God of this age, which is whom? The autonomous self, to be promoted to such a point that we actually think that they're, you know, behind the scenes in the back of our minds at times can begin to think, well, I kind of follow Jesus and I do it my way. <laughs> and there is no situation of compromise like that that actually works within our faith. 
Revelation was written so that these believers who were feeling enormous pressure, being tempted either to compromise, or maybe they weren't feeling the same pressure in some of their cities or some of their situations, but they were beginning to become complacent. Revelation was written so that they could see something that would call them out of complacency, out of compromise, to the one true thing that God wanted to present for them to see. Now, if we could reduce the whole book of Revelation into two words... (laughs) It would be this, behold Jesus. That is the central message that we're invited into over and over and over throughout the book. And I look forward to helping us identify how often it appears throughout the text. Now, that's two words. I suppose if there was two other words to add to it, so revelation in two words is behold Jesus. If it was going to be four words, I'd say in response to beholding Jesus, there's two things that revelation suggests over and over and over again we're called to, and they are Worship and witness. So if you're the kind of person that likes to kind of hold on to the simplest form of anything and you're like, okay, here's what I need to know for Revelation as we keep going forward. Yes, it's this. Behold Jesus, worship and witness. So that's a little bit of the why behind Revelation. What do we need to know as we move forward into Revelation? I want to share three things about the style that Revelation is written in. And it's actually what we just read from verse 1 through verse 8. We find these three things in there, and I want to point this out to you now. First is this. Revelation is a letter. Revelation is a letter. When you look uh, down at your scripture right now, in verse 4... How does it start? John, comma. Now, when we write letters today, if we saw a letter that said John, comma, we would think, oh, we're writing something to John, right? But in the ancient Greek and Roman way of writing letters, you did it a little bit backwards. You actually started by addressing um, who was writing. You identified yourself. And so we know that John is writing a letter, and then in ancient Greek letter writing, you first identify self. And then you identify whom you're writing to. And so he says, I'm writing to seven churches that are in Asia. And then you write a a goodwill message. And Romans and Greeks would do this. If they had some sort of prayer that they could include, they would write a prayer there for whoever they're writing. And so what do we find? You can relook at the passage. What does John do? He identifies himself. He identifies who he's writing to. And then he writes a message of goodwill and a prayer of sorts out. And then following that, ancient Greek and Roman letters then would get into the content. And so we understand right from the beginning that this is a letter. In fact, it's the longest letter in the New Testament, the book of Revelation. It's written by a real person named John to real people who are in seven churches. Now, I just want to point out as we move towards the rest of the book, there are some key words that keep appearing in this letter. And I want to just draw your attention to a few of them. The phrase, I, saw, uh, I heard, appears 32 times. The phrase, I saw, appears 40 times. So it might be interesting to point out that in Revelation, the primary exhortation is actually not to obey, although we understand that that's part of it. The primary exhortation of Revelation is to listen and look. And we get the word behold 19 times John, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, wants us to see something. He wants us to hear something. He, in fact, wants all of our senses engaged as you go through this book. So first of all, the book of Revelation is a letter. Second of all, the book of Revelation is a prophecy. The book of Revelation is a prophecy. How do we know? Well, it says 
right in one of the first verses. It says, blessed is the one who reads uh, the words of this prophecy. Now, I need to just dispel some things that might be built into some of our thinking. Biblically, by the way, what you're hearing is a fire truck, and it's not here because of the smoker that's outside, nor any vehicles. It's just because it's Father's Day, we thought it'd be fun to have a fire truck on site too, and that's for real. I don't know if they'll let us climb the ladder, but wouldn't that be fun? I need to dispel something about prophecy. Some of us have adopted an idea that prophecy must always have to do with prediction. Biblically, the genre of prophecy has much more to do with declaration than it does with prediction. Are there predictions in biblical prophecy? Yeah, there are some. But the genre, the way biblical prophecy works, Old Testament and New Testament, is that it's about declaring things that God is saying. Biblical prophecy is less about look what's coming and more about thus saith the Lord, to borrow the oldest English we can find. Or in other words, this is what God has to say. Eugene Peterson says this on the subject of the prophetic nature of Revelation. If we make the prophetic word a predictive word, we are procrastinating, putting distance between ourselves and the application of the world. And this is important. Because if you think that Revelation is only about predicting things for us about the future, how do we handle the book? Passively. We begin to think, oh, this is about the future. I... There's less urgency for me to live in the reality of what this book is talking about until we get there. How many of us have thought, well, one day persecution will come and that's when, boy, I will stand up for my faith then. I mean, we might not think it that way in our heads, but it actually kind of comes out that way. It's like, if it gets that bad one day, I will do that. What, what is that? That's a spiritual procrastination. It's a spiritual passivity based and built around this idea that we've thought the book is only predictive. But if it's prophetic, truly biblically prophetic, it's, it's actually saying, this is what God's saying, and if that's what he's saying, then obedience or response matters when? Future, yes, but also now. So back to the quote. Uh, if we make prophetic, uh, the prophetic word a predictive word, we are procrastinating, putting distance between ourselves and the application of the word, putting off dealing with it until some future date. The revelation of what must soon take place, which says in Revelation 1.1, means precisely soon. As soon as hearts are responsive, and as soon as ears are receptive, and as soon as eyes are perceptive. That means every time you and I are in this book, its application is now, because God is speaking now through this book. Does that make sense? Eugene Peterson goes on to say, and this is a bit interesting to think about, um, there is no new information in the book of Revelation. I'm going to read this quote in just a moment, but before I get there, I want to put it to you this way. Um, World-renowned historian and biblical scholar N.T. Wright says this uh, in the most profound, you know how some scholars can say the most intense things and you have to really think about it? Get a load of this. He says, reading Revelation is like watching Shrek. <laughs> I found it really refreshing when I read that in one of his texts. I'm like, oh, I understand that. I didn't have to reread that sentence. He thinks it's like reading Shrek because um, anybody can engage it at a surface level. And how many people have seen Shrek before? 
There are nursery rhymes in Shrek, aren't there? And there are fairy tales in Shrek. And the more familiar you are with the nursery rhymes and the fairy tales, the more you understand the parody that's going on through the whole story of Shrek. Now, if you don't know the nursery rhyme and you don't know the fairy tale, you can still have a good time watching Shrek, right? But the, nor the more you know about other stuff before Shrek, the more you understand the whole movie. Does that make sense? Revelation contains 518 references to the Old Testament. 518. So that means there is so much that's drawn on from before and earlier that's brought into the book. And now to Eugene Peterson's quote, everything in Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. The revelation adds nothing of substance to what we already know. The truth of the gospel is already complete, revealed in Jesus Christ. There is nothing new to say on the subject, but there is a new way to say it. I read the revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. Which sets us up to the third thing that we need to know about revelation. Revelation is a letter, it's a prophecy, and it's an apocalypse. Can everybody say apocalypse? Now, I need to confront you right away with something massive. We all, I'm pretty confident all, need to unlearn apocalypse. Can everybody say unlearn apocalypse? The word today does not mean what it meant when it was written 2,000 years ago. Can I be clear about that? The word apocalypse today does not mean what it meant 2,000 years ago. Today, the word apocalypse means what? Disaster! The end! It'll even be in headlines sometimes. You know, The word shows up because of some sort of freak nature thing that's occurring. We're like, oh, the end is near or whatever. Um, originally, 2,000 years ago, apocalypse, which comes from a Greek word um, that sounds exactly the same, <laughs> means unveiling. Can you say unveiling? It's, it's the kind of thing that happens when you go to a theater show and you sit there and you're, you're waiting for the show to begin and you're in your seats, you're chatting a little bit and then music in the background begins swelling a little bit and you see some adjustments to the lighting. You're like, something's about to happen, something's about to happen. What is it, what is it, what is it? And all of a sudden the lights go very bright and the music swells and the curtains are opened and that is an apocalypse. That is an apocalypse. Something that we could not see is suddenly revealed for us. <gasps> oh. It was so great this morning. The guys who were running the smoker were here at 6. They were here late last night prepping things as well. And so I saw a few people walking in from the parking lot today. And they're like following their nose, following their nose. And then they see a smoker and it's closed. And they're like, what could be in there? I smell this. I smell that. What is it? What is it? Apocalypse. <laughs> Revelation is an apocalypse. Does that make sense? It is not about disaster. It is not about the end. That's what we've done with the word with the la for the last 2,000 years. And that's very confusing, isn't it? It is about an unveiling, an opening, the curtains being drawn. 
The revelation then, if it is an apocalypse, which it actually says, what is the first word of this book? The apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Whatever, Jesus, we're beholding something. We're beholding someone in a way we've never seen him before. So what is the revelation saying? All 22 chapters are saying something so important to us. Revelation is saying things are not as they seem. When you look at the present world that surrounds us right now, when you ponder the future, things are not as they seem. There's, there's something to be opened. There's curtains to be drawn. You and I can be welcomed into seeing what's actually going on, to see what's really real. That's good news for us. A couple more things on apocalypse. Apocalyptic literature seeks to set the present in light of unseen realities of both the present and the future. I think we all know that there are unseen realities. What the gift of revelation does for us is says, I'm going to show you what these unseen realities are going on right now, and that will be going on in the future as well. Secondly, apocalyptic literature was an ancient genre full of exaggerated and embellished symbolism. This is so important. So the revelation, these 22 chapters that we have, is not the only ancient apocalyptic text. In fact, there's other apocalyptic stuff in scripture too. And they follow the same kind of pattern of this ancient genre. Outside of Christianity, outside of Judaism, there were other things that were written in this genre, apocalyptic genre. And what's common of them? Exaggerated and embellished symbolism. One scholar suggests that one of the best ways for us to understand what apocalyptic literature is like in our modern era would be political cartoons. You've maybe flipped through a paper before or seen things online. And what is going on? Exaggerated and embellished symbolism. In Laura's family, she has some brothers who live in the States, and I don't know if you've heard that they're going to have an election in the next while. Anybody know that that's going to happen? And we, because of the situation with Laura's mother, we were together, and one of them who's pastoring in a church in Los Angeles just said, I am not looking forward to this. He said it, the last election was just so tense all the time in community and in their church as well, because... It's just the way it works in that country. And so they are anticipating that. And will there be political cartoons? Yeah. But imagine with me. Let's work our brains together. I've done this in a past series somewhere before, so some of you this will be reviewed. Imagine with me that there's a political cartoon, and what we see is a beaver and an eagle walking down a pathway together. And the eagle, or the beaver, is heading and probably going to go a little bit towards the left and the beaver's going to go down towards the other way and he, he sees in the distance check boxes and an elephant and a donkey and what does the beaver say? Good luck, eh? Now, I've described something to you. <laughs> I've described something to you. But most of us in the room were like, I understand exactly what if we saw that cartoon in a paper, we'd be like, oh, America's going to have an election. There's going to be a lot of disagreement. And so us nice Canadians are saying, hey, good luck. Right? A. Yeah. So we'd get that, right? 
apocalyptic literature is like that. Commonly in apocalyptic literature, people get represented as animals. Does that happen in Revelation? Do we have a lamb? Do we have beasts? Commonly in apocalyptic language, historic events begin to get represented as if they were natural phenomenon. Do we have historical events occurring as if they were a natural phenomenon? Are there earthquakes in Revelation? Are there floods? Is there thunder and weather systems? Does the sun and the moon change colors and do funny things? Uh Uh-huh, it's telling us that there's historic events. Colors and numbers in apocalyptic literature have a lot more meaning because of their symbolism. Do we find numbers at all in the book of Revelation? Three and a half, seven. What's the most popular number in Revelation? I was gonna. I thought more people would be like six, six, six. That, that's the one everybody in the world knows, right? One hundred forty-four thousand numbers seem to matter so much in this book. Why? Because in apocalyptic literature, they mattered so much. I want to. I want to share a modern apocalypse with you. This is going to help us understand how apocalyptic literature works. I want to begin by asking you, uh, how many of you know where you were on February twenty-eighth, twenty twenty? I knew you would. Anybody else know where you were on February 28th, 2020? I was associate pastor at this church, and I was downstairs in the fellowship hall, and it was the gold medal game. Sorry, 2010. I'm so sorry. 2010. I'm a decade off, but you still, you were with me. He knew. 2010. Okay, now all of you are like, oh, yeah, yeah. No, I knew that. I knew that. I knew where I was. Where were you watching the gold medal game? Most of us were watching it somewhere. Even the least interested hockey fans seemed to get picked up in the moments of that. Why? Sorry about the date blunder. Why? Um, Because the game was happening on our own soil. And as the tournament progressed, it led towards the most intriguing gold medal game, which was Canada against the U.S., the the Beaver versus the uh, Eagle. And um, who scored the golden goal? Sidney Crosby, where is he from? Nova Scotia, Cole, Cole Harbor, to be specific, right? And who, um, who did he get the puck from? Huh? Aginla, yeah, and where did Aginla play at the time? Calgary Flames, okay, so Calgary, Flatland, Flames. I just want to set up now for you a modern apocalypse. This was written by a friend. I think it's just absolutely excellent. So sit back and enjoy. Go back to 2010. February 28th with me, and listen to a modern apocalypse. I looked, and I heard the nations of the earth gather before the red leaf. It was frozen from sea to shining sea, and circled with rings of every color of the nations of the earth. And the nations cried, let's contest for glory and for honor, and it was so. And I listened, and I saw the armies of the great nations of ice step forward and engage in battle. They chased an orb covered in black, and victory or defeat was found in a bright red light. From time upon time, the nations watched and trembled as one nation vanquished another, allowing only two to remain. Then the red leaf and its army called forth its heroes. 
and there was a flame that lived on flat land. <laughs> and there was also the man from Coal Harbor. And the people of their nation cried out, Let it be so! And they were dressed for battle with 30 million faces and 30 million hearts and 30 million red leaves emblazed upon their chests. But then I looked and I saw a great beast from the south step forward onto the frozen land. It was clothed in blue and encircled with 50 stars. It battled the red leaf with anger and contempt and pursued the orb as viciously as the red leaf. And the people of the red leaf grew much afraid. Especially when Luongo let in that third goal. And there were three-thirds of time upon time that had been destroyed. The nations knew that time was short. But as the beast let bellow its victory call, the flame from Flatland marched into the far corner of the earth and took ownership of the orb, declaring for all who had ears to hear, the orb belongs to the 30 million faces and the 30 million hearts. Then the man from Coal Harbor screamed, and if you listen to the replay, you can hear him scream, at the flame, and the flame threw the orb at him, and he hurled the orb toward the beast. And there was thunder, and there was lightning, and there was a bright red light. <laughs> the beast from the south was utterly defeated, and the nations of the earth rose to their feet, and with a great Cry called out, glory and honor is established. Let the nations recognize the red leaf and the flame and the coal harbor. For they have defeated the beast with the orb and have brought fame and renown upon the earth. And in the heavens and on the earth, there arose a great peace, which lasted for four years. <laughs> Apocalypse, do you get it? Is it? Now, for most of us in the room, we were there, we watched it. If I hadn't set it up, you'd read that and you're like, hey, wait a minute, this is talking about the gold medal game. You would have figured it out. For the first Christians of the 80s and 90s AD in that first century, Revelation, the whole 22 chapters, came at them like that. Every piece of symbolism, every beast, everything mentioned, they're like, oh, Jesus, Rome, oh, 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 they knew what it meant. Now, was there a lot of exaggeration and embellishment in the modern one? And is there a lot of exaggeration and embellishment in the book of Revelation? It's so important for us to know the answer to that is yes. So why apocalypse? Two reasons. Number one, code. Why did John write the apocalypse? Why did the Spirit give John the apocalypse in that genre? Number one was code. We'll talk a little bit more next week about this, but John was writing from a, a, a prison post. And whatever he wrote to the seven churches across the Aegean Sea was bound to be reviewed by a Roman prison censor who was going to read to make sure that it wasn't like hate mail being circulated. And so when he opens it up, he's like, this is just a bunch of gobbledygook. It's like children's stories. There's lions, there's lambs, there's beasts. 
whatever. You want to send this to those people there? Yeah, I want to send this. Okay, off it goes. And so it was code. And we get to decode some of that as we go through this together. Now, the second reason. Oh, we didn't get the updated slide. <laughs> Vivid. If you can read the slide there, I did send in a corrected version, but for today's purposes, it's vivid, um, missing one eye. Vivid equals memorable. Apocalyptic language is very vivid, isn't it? But it's memorable. Probably some of you, as you go home today, will be like, I can remember some of that apocalypse from the gold medal game, right? Um, when, I, when I gave you that uh, beaver and the eagle image, most of you saw it in your minds, didn't you? You came up with a picture of what that beaver must look like and what the eagle must look like and over there's the donkey and over there's the elephant and the check marks and all of that and good luck. Eh? You saw it in your minds. Why? Because vivid makes something memorable. Daryl Johnson says this, imagery has the power to go deeper than mere words. Just ask any advertising agency. Imagery has the power to hook us deep inside. Images can quickly and effectively convey that uh, which is a struggle and put it, uh, that which is a struggle to put into words. Imagery goes beyond the intellect and through the emotions into the imagination, grabbing hold of us at the deepest recesses of our being, informing the intellect and igniting the emotions, changing the way that we see and hear reality. Okay, that's a bit of a heady quote. You want a simple one? Albert Einstein said this, imagination is more important than intelligence. And so what does Revelation capitalize on? Inviting its hearers, its readers, to imagine something very vivid so that the message of Jesus sticks with us. That's why we'll notice from time to time throughout the book there are repetitions. And it's really important that I... It's, it's funny to have to say this, but it's worth just, I, want, I wanted you to be very clear for you, so I believe we have this slide as well. The revelation does not always progress in chronological order. And we'll bump into this along the way as we go through it, but it's important to say from the get-go, because some of us might read it being like, okay, this is happening, then this is happening, then this is happening, then this is happening. But revelation, the apocalypse was not written to be understood in chronological order. There's movements backwards and forwards. And if you don't believe me, Christmas is near the middle of the revelation. And if you still don't believe me, stick around with us through this fall. We might get there at Christmas. <laughs> so what's behind the curtain? What's behind the curtain? Obviously, it's Jesus, but there's a message, and I like how N.T. Wright says it. He says, according to John, it was not Rome's dios, their gods, Zeus and Jupiter, but Israel's Theos, their one God, who is in charge of history. This is what the message of Revelation is bringing to the world. It was not the emperor, but the Christ, who is the agent of salvation. And it was not the Roman people, but the church that was destined to reign over the earth. That's what's being seen as the curtains are drawn. I want us just to go backward for a moment, and then we're going to land the plane here. If you just go back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. I just want to read this one last time. I believe it asks us three questions for us to consider as we head into this series. The revelation, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel and his servant, uh, to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God, and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads these words of prophecy. Blessed is the one who hears it and takes it to heart. Uh, 
because the time is near. So three questions for your heart to, to consider right now. The first words are the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave. The first question is, will you believe that God gave this? And I'm not assuming everyone in the room will. You have every right and reason to evaluate this. But if you're with us believing that God has given it, that helps you in this journey. Do you believe God has given it? Second question is, will you trust that the revelation is accurately portraying who Jesus is? Will you trust that God has given this? Secondly, will you trust that it accurately portrays who Jesus is? And then the third question would be, will you take it to heart? And this will be very important to us. Now, some of us are at a point in our spiritual journey where we're like, I'm, I'm here for the ride. I'm going to evaluate this, and that's okay. But for those of you who are maybe, you've been a little bit spiritually passive lately, and you're like, I need to wake up, then I'm asking you specifically today, will you trust that this is from God? Will you trust that this has more authority on reality than you or any website you like to read on? Will you trust that this has a greater authority of presenting who Jesus is than anybody you might debate with? Will you trust that? Will you take it to heart? Last thing I want to point out, if your answer to these things is yes, then I want to present to you one last time for this message, Jesus. One of the beautiful things about this book, and we don't have the time to unpack it at length, but if you read the prologue, which we have today, and the epilogue at the end of the book, we find there's some patterns, some things, three things appear in the prologue that get echoed again in the epilogue. Could it be we're to see something about Jesus at the very beginning of the book and at the very end, which signals he's at the beginning, he's at the end, he's all throughout it. At the beginning of the book, it says he is coming. At the end of the book, it says he is coming. Friends, I just have the joyful reminder for all of you that in spite of the brokenness, pain, and ache in our world, in spite of the wonderful things and all the awful things, Jesus is coming and he's going to make all things new. The book also says at the beginning and the end that the time is near in the Greek text and it's translated this way in the Gospels as well in some places. It's as if saying it's at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand is what Jesus says in one place in the Gospels. That's the same language being used here. God's kingdom and the work of Jesus is at hand. That doesn't mean that it's way far away, and one day it'll eventually get to us. When it's written here, when it was written in the gospel, it meant it's within reach. Grab it, if you like. Hold on to him. Hold on to his word. Grasp his kingdom. You can, you can touch it. You can experience it now. It's at hand. It's near. It says that at the beginning, and it says it at the end. When it says it at the end, it also says that he's the bright and morning star. And friends, that comes to us as such good news. The ancients believed there was a star that appeared in the sky when night got to its absolute darkest. And when that star, the morning star, appeared, it was still going to be dark for a while, but that star meant it's not going to get any darker, and in fact, daylight is on its way. And so Jesus ends the book by saying, I'm coming soon. The time is near. It's within reach. You can hold on to this. And I'm the bright morning star. You might feel it's gotten dark. And yes, it's gotten as dark as it ever will be. And there might be darkness for a time or a time and again. But guess what? It's only going to get brighter because I am coming soon. I'm the bright and morning star and the light of Jesus. It's on its way to shine fully into our world and fully into our lives. And at the beginning of the book and at the end, Jesus says, I am, which in the Jewish world meant so much. That's like something only God can say. And at the beginning, he says, I am the alpha, Greek word meaning the first letter. I am the omega, Greek word meaning the last letter of the alphabet. I am the alpha, the omega, the beginning 
and the end, the first and the last. And at the end of the book, he says the same thing. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first and the last. And when we look at the words beginning and end, the word beginning is the Greek word ark, where we get the word archetype from. And it means Jesus is declaring over you and I that he is the first. He is the archetype for all creation. He's the first in a sequence of creation. He's the first in a sequence of history. He's the first in humanity. He's the first in a sequence of salvation. He's the first in a sequence of resurrection. It even says at the beginning, he's the firstborn of the dead or the firstborn of the resurrection, meaning he's not the only one. It means there's a hope for you and I that what's happened in him will happen to us and will happen to our world. He is the archetype. He is the beginning. And the word end is the word Greek. And the word Greek is telos. He is the end. He is the fulfillment. The acorns telos is an oak tree. It's the end. It's the final destiny of something. And the final destiny of Christ is a new beginning for all humanity and for all earth. Our destiny is not destruction. Our destiny is not death. Our destiny, our telos, is Jesus Christ. He's the beginning and he is the end, which is a new beginning, an eternity for all you and I. Let's stand together. We're inviting everybody as we go through this series, as much as possible, read ahead in the series. And so this week, I'm going to ask you to read Revelation 1, 9 through 20. Now, if you can read it once, read it once. If you can read it multiple times this week, go for it. Journal it. Identify things that you're beholding in Jesus. Keep in mind some of the things we talked about in this service. Have fun with it. Next week, we'll unpack it together. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for your good work in our lives by your spirit through Jesus Christ. Right now, we pray a blessing over each person here. We pray that through this time that our eyes would be opened in new ways to the living, risen Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Now, we definitely have those smoked bacon-wrapped chicken drumsticks for every male, young, and old. And we might have some extras left, too. So ladies, linger, okay? And just make a few passes by the table, and there might be some for you as well. Everybody go outside and enjoy a special treat. Happy Father's Day to everyone. God bless you.